0: Thank you for listening to NSL Double Talk.
1: Never stop learning.
0: At Never Stop Learning, we connect you with engaging experts who join you and your friends or colleagues in conversation at a location of your choosing. With NSL Double Talk, we are bringing the Never Stop Learning model directly to you. Each podcast will feature two experts in conversation on topics that range from global affairs to wellness to arts to innovation. Sometimes the experts agree, sometimes they don't, but we will
2: never stop learning and never stop laughing.
0: I could talk to it forever.
2: <laughs> NSL Double Talk featuring Matt Harris and Jalak Putra. Their topic today focuses on the future of blockchain. Matt is a managing director at Bain Capital Ventures, where he focuses on investments in financial technology and services. He sees a huge amount of revenue, profit, and market cap shifting from regulated financial institutions to entrepreneur-led insurgents across payments, lending, capital markets, and insurance. Prior to Bain, he founded and ran Village Ventures for over a decade, focusing on early stage fintech investing. Matt served as the chairman of the board of the Williamstown Theatre Festival for over a decade. He is a senior advisor to Endeavor, an organization leading the global movement to catalyze long-term economic growth by selecting, mentoring, and accelerating the best high-impact entrepreneurs around the world. Jalak founded Future Perfect Ventures in 2014 after 20 years in the technology and VC sectors. FPV was the first fund worldwide to focus on decentralized connectivity. In 2017, FPV was noted by TechCrunch as one of the first investors in the blockchain space, before it was cool. And IBT referred to Jalak as one of the top five investors powering the blockchain boom. She was recently named one of the institutional investors' most powerful fintech dealmakers. Jalak has invested in 80 companies and several multi-billion dollar exits and IPOs. And she has served on multiple advisory boards for the White House, the New York City Mayor's Office, and the U.S. State Department. She serves on the board for the Center for an Urban Future and is a frequent news program contributor. We are so excited to welcome Matt Harris and Jalak Putra to NSL Double Talk.
1: Well, Jalak, it's good to be with you. I'm looking forward to our conversation about crypto.
2: Absolutely. It's always fun to talk to you, Matt.
1: You've basically been a crypto-slash-distributed-ledger-slash-decentralized-investor for a long time, longer than anyone I can think of. Maybe I'll throw the first question out to you. What are you most excited about now?
0: Well, I'm ironically excited that the bubble burst. A year ago, we were in the middle of this craze, um, this initial coin offering craze, and I think we kind of lost sight of how unique and potentially disruptive this technology behind Bitcoin and cryptocurrency can be. There are 4 billion people around the world who still have to get onto the internet, and we take that for granted. 2 billion of those people still don't have bank accounts. And what's so disruptive about this technology is the fact that, you know, we may not need banks in the future. We may not need people to verify transactions. If our machines are talking to each other, all these devices talking to each other, they'll be able to transact and keep all our data secure, potentially through blockchain and distributed ledger technology. And I think the next couple of years are going to be really exciting to see what kinds of uh, new applications emerge around the world.
1: I agree with you, clearing out the nonsense of all these tokens. Yeah,
0: it was to. fun. Uh, it was quite a ride. <laughs> um, I'd love to hear from you too, yeah. because you've been a fintech investor longer than most people I know. And- um, You invest a bit at the later stages, so once companies are a little bit more established than the stage I invest in. And so I'd love to hear your perspective on whether you think this is all real or how long you think it's going to take for some of these applications to emerge.
1: Well, I think the second question is more operable. I I think it's demonstrably not real in the sense of economic activity, at scale, any of those things. Every quarter we ask, okay, is there a use case for crypto? Is there a use case for blockchain? And the answer is always no. The answer is always, you know, at scale you can have all the bank accounts you need and all the countries you need in hyper-efficient currency operations. And you can look at leveraging crypto exchanges as an alternative to all that, but it's always more expensive, always less reliable so far. So I, I guess I would say that my report from the field is that there's not a screaming use case, at least in cross-border payments as an example, amongst kind of banked customers. So it doesn't violate the business case that you presented for the you know two billion people who, don't, who aren't, aren't banked and who are looking maybe for a leapfrog. But for my payments companies, for instance, you know, we we try to stay abreast of all the things that are coming, all the solutions that the crypto world or or the DLT world are presenting, and none of them so far have been better, faster, cheaper.
0: Kind of reminds me of the internet in yeah. um, 1995, 1996. I mean, Amazon was created in 95. And then there was a frenzy of companies that went public in the late 90s and 2000. Um remember Pets.com raising a lot of capital, and it took a really long time for the internet to become useful. Yeah. But it did. And that's the big question mark. This technology has a lot that it can do, just like the internet had a lot of potential in 95, but it was so slow. I remember- getting my parents on a dial-up connection back in the day. They're like, why would we use this? We can go to a dictionary and look up what we need to look up or an encyclopedia to look up what we needed to look up. And there were a lot of naysayers back then because it was such slow technology. We didn't have mobile connectivity. We didn't have broadband. You couldn't do much. We didn't have all the payments, online payments mechanisms. So do you think that is a fair analogy with this technology?
1: I mean, it'd be great if we disagreed more. I do I do think, <laughs> for better or for worse, I mean, I. Present, that was a
0: bit of a leading question. But I
1: happen to agree. I mean, I presented to my partners the other day the Amazon stock price chart. We're not overly exposed to crypto, but there's a lot of naysayers who are like, hey, look, I told you so. Um, and if you look at that chart, it was like unbelievably vertical from 95 to 2000, as you'd expect. And then it cratered. And it took six years to get back to the peak. And then it's up 20 times, you know, from 06 to 18. So the if you took the answer from 2000 that the internet was nonsense and just destroyed value and was safe to ignore, that was a bad takeaway, obviously. And the risk exists here that people, you know, make the same mistake. And as you point out, like, there was no better, faster, cheaper having to do with the internet in 2000, or much less 95, it was slower, more expensive because shipping was more expensive and, and there was nothing better about it. There was a novel thing about the internet that you couldn't do in the past. That level of connectivity changed a lot. It just took a while for it to emerge in the form of economic value. And I think we're still waiting to see what decentralization brings. Um and it's just, it's an imagination game right now. And that's the beauty of it. But also I find it challenging. You meet with entrepreneurs who paint a picture and you're like, well, that that's a marvelous picture. But honestly, I can't really invest now in the hopes that eight years from now that comes true. It's pretty challenging.
0: Well, you can't, but I can at but the early you, stage. I mean, how do you manage
1: the burn rate and the sort of like, what if?
0: Well, I invest in very capital efficient entrepreneurs, so... I got into this space in 2014, and from 2014 to 2017, the beginning of 2017, Bitcoin's price was flat to down. So the crypto public markets weren't really doing anything. It was the imagination of these entrepreneurs, of companies such as BitPesa that thought you know, there's a more efficient way to do cross-border payments into and out of Africa. Right now, you have to go through so many correspondent banks. They're very expensive transactions. That's why a lot of businesses and individuals are not banked, because it hasn't been efficient to reach a lot of these customers. And so the founder thought, well, this is an immediate use for the Bitcoin blockchain. I can use Bitcoin to to do these foreign exchange transactions on the back end. Now, do I think that's going to be their long-term business model? Maybe not. There may be new business models that emerge, but there was an immediate use case right there. And so that's what I really looked for. And also entrepreneurs that knew that this was not going to be an overnight thing, just like, I invested in internet entrepreneurs in 96 and 97 who actually survived all these years later and they were able to deal with the downturns because they were able to be nimble enough about their businesses, capital efficient enough about their businesses, and not all of them will survive, but that's why I have a portfolio. But I look at the survival rate from 2014 and it's quite high. And they're the ones that were well positioned to take advantage of last year's boom, and they'll be okay during any upcoming you know, crypto winter or downturn.
1: <laughs> right. Speaking of the crypto winter, so the ICO thing had its peak surely in 2018, and then things have collapsed in token land. Do you wish that just had never happened that all these, you know, five, six billion dollars worth of ICOs that are now worth hundreds of millions? that that was a distraction that we'll just have a hangover from? Or was it like the dot-com boom where it created all this fiber in the ground that we can benefit from? Like, what, what, Or is there a third metaphor that you would think of?
0: No, you're good at metaphors. <laughs> I can't think of another. i I'm happy it happened. Like human beings are speculative. I think we've seen that over and over again, at least male human beings. We haven't had enough women in control of capital yet to see if it would be true if if women were also in charge. But I I think we need to go through those cycles, Um, and we've never been able to get away from cycles. So I was just happy it happened in the course of a year, and we can move on to building. And there are lots of lessons learned. There are corpses along the way, but that was inevitable, and it's better to get that over with.
1: And do you think that this business model of selling coins, selling tokens, pre-sales, business models based on these like protocols with these fueled by tokens that you can then monetize, is that durable and was just abused or is that kind of something that's not going to work.
0: Your guess is as good as mine. I believe that Bitcoin at least has shown that you can use crypto economic incentives or you can combine economic incentives with computing and technology to create behaviors. You know, the whole concept of Bitcoin is that once it reaches a certain amount of decentralization, everyone's incentivized for the price to go up and using the network that no one turns on the network, even though no one owns the network. And I think there's a beauty in that simplicity. And what's been challenging is that other protocols haven't been able to replicate that. If you look at smart contracts, and it, it just gets so complicated. Human beings are, at the end of the day, complicated. And so I don't know whether Bitcoin in the way its system works can be replicated for other uses. What I'd really love to get your take on is this whole concept of fractionalization of assets, this whole idea of security yeah. tokens that... You can now take, say, a building, a piece of real estate, and sell off smaller pieces of it through tokens. Uh, right now, not everyone has access to invest in, in a building. And the idea is that you bring the cost down low to be able to issue tokens to different investors. So in some ways, it's just digitizing, say, shares. Correct. Do you think that is interesting use of this technology?
1: I have many thoughts and feelings on this topic. I mean, the parts of crypto that pertain to the financial system, I generally find kind of frustrating to talk about because as in um, security tokens, there isn't a lot of new art. In other words, you could take Rockefeller Center, you could create an LLC, you could divide it into many, many units of any size you wanted. You could sell those memberships under you know, U.S. law to credit investors. They would benefit from them under the rules of the, you know, LLC. And so it's it's burdensome, and there's a reason people don't do that, but none of that burden has gone away simply because you name that membership interest a token. In other words, the U.S. government is still going to want there to be KYC, all the AML rules need to be followed, all the suitability, all the stuff in securities law and, and financial law need to be followed whatever you call the thing at the end of the day. It's a little bit like what happened with Robinhood in late 2018 where this brokerage firm launched what they called a 3% checking account. And then the regulator said, well, it's actually not a checking account and you never called us and you can't do that. You can't just call a thing a different thing because you and your marketing department thought you wanted to. And security tokens remind me of that. It's like, that's an LLC interest in an LLC and I hope you did all the plumbing and by the way, who wants that? So I think all the talk about security tokens sort of on one hand overpromises because it's the same thing called something different and on the other hand assumes a level of demand that I don't think we have any reason to believe exists.
0: I don't think all of us have access to invest in what we want to. I mean, there are minimums on certain types of assets or access to certain types of assets. I mean, if I look at my investment fund, your fund, right? We have minimums, uh, we have requirements, an entry point yep. for investors. I do think that there is value in lowering that barrier to entry if you can lower the administrative costs. Now, administrative costs are important because I don't want thousands of investors texting me necessarily, so we have to figure out a lot of that. But then I also think about outside of the U.S., how many people around the world have to keep cash under their mattress, almost literally, because they can't invest it. They don't have bank accounts, and they certainly don't have access to stock markets or real estate investments. And the reason, as I traveled around the world over the last few years talking about Bitcoin and crypto and blockchain, a reason a lot of them were excited about it was they could buy a dollar's worth of Bitcoin. They can't buy a share of Microsoft stock. They can't buy a piece of real estate down the street.
1: On that topic, so if they have the wherewithal to open a, a wallet in the crypto space, pass all the regulatory stuff that in most countries, you know, it's quite similar to opening any financial account these days. And then they can take their fiat and turn it into a fractional ownership in Bitcoin, for instance. They could alternatively go to a brokerage and do all that same thing and buy a fraction of a share of Microsoft.
0: I I don't agree with that. There were a lot of customers of, uh, say, BitPesa when they were more retail-oriented, they're now doing more business-to-business, business that did not have bank accounts. They were, they're using mobile money systems. There was no way they had access to brokerage. To it buy any stock. Certainly <laughs> in
1: India, you do have access to brokerages. If you have access to a Bitcoin wallet, you have access to an online brokerage. Well, not
0: not in a lot of countries not in any. Africa.
1: Uh, sh- yeah. Surely there are exceptions. I would so, say-
0: um, I mean, to be fair, regulations have changed. And I'd say it's been harder to open up Bitcoin wallets right. around the crypto wallets around the world, because governments have started clamping down. But that doesn't obviate the fact that there was huge demand. For those accounts and for that access, uh, they didn't all have to go through KYC and AML back in the day. No, that's right. So, so I, you know, I, I think to say that now, if you have access to a Bitcoin wallet, then you can go to brokerage. I, I think you have to look before all of these regulations came in and see what the demand and what people in villages were saying. I don't know how they can open up a brokerage account in the middle of the Masai Mara in Africa with no banking. It, it's just not possible to do that.
1: But I would say a wallet is a brokerage. I mean, this is the thing. I think much of crypto prior to this year was based on regulatory arbitrage of one type or another, which gets back to security tokens, which is if you could convince the regulators that if you buy a token that owns one millionth of Rockefeller Center, you don't have to do KYC and AML because it's a token. But if you bought the LLC interest, you have to do all that stuff. Oh, and I I'm would not agree. saying
0: there shouldn't be KYC or AML. I'm not saying that there shouldn't be regulation. In fact, I've been a huge proponent of, of regulating the sector so we can see the sector grow. At least we'll know what the guidelines are. But I think we also have to think more creatively about regulation around the world. And realize that the current regulations were created how many years ago?
1: Decades, for sure.
0: 60 plus years ago. And they haven't really kind of kept up with the reality. And again, I think the U.S. and the developed world is one bucket, and this is the way I invest. I certainly agree to limitations of the technology or the potential use in a lot of the developed world. I think it's about creating more efficiencies. We will see new business models emerge, just like we saw Uber and Airbnb emerge out of mobile technology. We will see what new types of exchanges happen out of this technology, but I can't predict what those are right now. But I do think that in order for global GDP to grow, for people to be able to grow their assets from, you know, we're talking about $100 in a lot of these places at the most. We need to start thinking about how do we encourage, and it's not maybe just about banking. You know, everyone's talking about banking the unbanked. I mean, do we even need banks in a lot of these places in the future? And I would take it one step further, I think these emerging markets are going to show us the new business models that we're going to use here. About 10 years ago, I was investing in mobile money. I was investing in telemedicine in Africa and India. And we're just starting to see telemedicine take off here in the U.S., partly because of regulations and the constraints. And so I agree with you on a lot, but to say that everyone's going to have to go through KYC and AML in the future in the same way, I think we're going to have to reinvent what KYC and AML means. Um, And that is, you know, maybe I'm, you know, too much of an optimist. (laughs) I don't know if it's going to happen in my lifetime, but I believe it needs to happen.
1: Well, it is happening. I mean, if you look at India... Obviously, they've done a nationwide biometric database, like they're using technology. Well, it's been hacked
0: many times, and it's not that hard to hack.
1: So these developments have fits and starts, but there are certainly countries looking to use technology to replace antiquated questionnaires and AML and KYC methods using modern technology. And again, you know, the libertarians hate this idea that the government has a clear sense of your identity all the time, but certainly... The founders of Adhar had financial inclusion in the foremost of their minds when they did this. So I don't disagree with that. I think the idea that these advances in identity will serve to allow for the proliferation only of or largely of crypto wallets is the point I'm trying to challenge, that people will have an easier time opening financial accounts in the future. You and I agree on that. It's not utopian. I think there are policy steps being taken in every country in the developing world towards that end. But I would say that the first financial asset that a farmer in Kenya should own is probably not necessarily a cryptocurrency. I think there are other more traditional assets that could be a stepping stone to wealth.
0: Sure. Yeah. Tokenized real estate, Exactly, They should own <laughs>
1: Rockefeller Center, I think is probably wow. the first thing they should. They,
0: they probably have a mall down the street that will uh, <laughs> maybe create a better return for them. <laughs>
1: So you mentioned this sort of experimentation, the radical experimentation that takes place in the developing world that we may then reimport. But in the developed world, again, there may be radical reimaginings that happen. We can't anticipate them. But we do have this new database format of the blockchain that corporations everywhere are paying lots of attention to. What are you seeing in your portfolio or in your travels? around the use of you know, what we think of as enterprise blockchain, distributed ledgers in corporations, generally permissioned, and where it's working and where it's not.
0: Enterprise blockchain is an area that has a lot of controversy because the purists say, well, if companies or a consortia of companies are controlling the information or have access to it or can verify it, then it's not truly decentralized the way, say, Bitcoin is where it's you know, distributed all over the world and no one entity has control over it. Um, I am starting to see some interesting use cases around enterprise blockchain. One of my portfolio companies is called Everledger. Uh, the founder comes from the diamond industry. And the diamond industry has been a very opaque industry for many years and a monopoly in a lot of ways. Diamonds need to be verified that they do not come from a conflict zone and that they were mined in an ethical fashion. So that need to track a diamond's provenance has become a lot more important. Secondly, there's been a lot of counterfeits coming out of Asia. Even serial numbers on diamonds have been counterfeited. Even GIA certificates have been counterfeited. So you have a lot of supply in the market in counterfeits. And then the third is synthetic diamonds that have been created in labs out of Silicon Valley. Uh, There's a a lot of millennials who don't buy the concept that diamonds are worth anything, right? I mean, they're they're, they're worth value because we ascribe value to it. You could say the same thing about gold. You could say the same thing about Bitcoin. So the founder of Everledger saw all these factors and and thought blockchain technology, if you could— provide the provenance of a diamond from mine all the way to retailer and allow insurance companies, allow consumers, allow diamond manufacturers to all be able to track that diamond and know that it is that same piece of stone all the way through. And they figured out there are 40 data points that make a diamond unique. So they track those 40 data points on a enterprise blockchain that only – certain folks across the supply chain have access to, but need to be verified by multiple parties through the process. So that's one area where there's an industry that was under pressure that had a reason to adopt this. It keeps insurance costs within check. Um, There are retailers in China that are actually issuing these certificates. Everledger now issues certificates along with GIA, and Mm. those retailers in China have been able to price those diamonds at a bit of a premium. Perfect. And so it's working. Now, I would say a lot of industries don't have those external pressures, that things work well enough. Right. And as an investor, it's so important to see what the inertia is and why people would adopt new technology, especially technology that requires coordination, often amongst competitors.
1: But I think the other advance is, as you say, there's these infrastructure players where basically they're sort of out of the box distributed ledger technologies that entrepreneurs can work with versus every one of these hundreds of entrepreneurs having to build their own and make all those same technical advances around partial anonymity that you reference and everything else. And feels like that kind of standardization is going to be a real tool for scaling.
0: Yes, and interoperability. And you're already seeing IBM working with R3, working with Ripple. And so even these enterprise blockchain kind of competitors are starting to figure out ways to interoperate. So I'm actually bullish on that piece of it. I just think we have to be careful about... Picking which are the right use cases initially versus going after everything or expecting everything to be transparent. I mean, Walmart has been working with IBM around food tracking, which is fascinating. Um, And we've seen a bunch of E. coli outbreaks in the U.S. and recalling every you know piece of romaine lettuce right. that is out there in the supermarkets is certainly not very efficient and if you're able to track those packages figure out which farms came from and do it almost in real time you can save a lot of costs and and th- that's certainly an incentive for Walmart to work with its suppliers to get them on a blockchain
1: system. yeah although that example and i will be curious if if i'm nitpicking here that example strikes me as a less obvious need for any kind of blockchain because you have Walmart who could just maintain a database right and say to its suppliers, you know what, we need to update this thing right. every point in the way. We need to know where all of our lettuce is, where it came from down to the leaf. Yeah. And and the people would do it and they wouldn't say, well, you know what, we can't have Walmart knowing or it needs to be decentralized. Walmart can just sort of say, I think the diamond industry example is a a more classic case to my thinking of Truly, they they don't even want to trust Everledger. They they need to have multiple verifiers in each node.
0: Yeah, no, that's absolutely true. I I agree with you. Why I'm excited about the Walmart example is the fact that you can see how it can be used. If you started wanting to work with, say, suppliers or a supplier wanted to work with Walmart and then they wanted to work with other vendors, then you could see the network effects starting to happen. So, I agree. I actually think a lot of these initial use cases are not necessarily needed, but they're showing us what the technology can potentially do and then how we can increase you know, suppliers as well as vendors and, and those networks. Again, I'm thinking globally yeah. outside of the Walmarts of the world.
1: Yeah. So, we have this example in the token world where we had this explosion and then this contraction. And I think you and I agree that some good was created during the, the explosion. And some good from the contraction. It shakes out a lot of weak players. And I wonder, I've been thinking about enterprise blockchain. We, we had an explosion. We've had a slower burn explosion with really almost every large company I can think of doing some kind of proof of concept. And I think we're entering a phase now where there's a little bit of a reality striking some of those companies where they're just like, well, I'm not getting a huge ROI from that proof of concept. But I don't think it's going to implode in any, I don't think we're going to go through some phase of massive backlash. Because like you say, it's not like, generally speaking, worse than a database. You know, like your worst case scenario is you get what you had. And your best case scenario is it's a path forward to some industry consortium or something that really benefits from decentralization. So I end up feeling that we're less likely to have an apocalyptic phase, even though, as you say, human beings are prone to Speculation, boom bust, et cetera. But. Right.
0: but companies, larger enterprises have to answer to their shareholders.
1: Yeah, and there's women and, involved. So, so it's a little common. There are usually more women involved.
0: All of IBM's uh, blockchain group is run by women, practically. There you go. So maybe, hey, there you, you said go. it, I didn't. We have a data point. <laughs> I think a lot of actually investors, early stage VCs, don't invest in enterprise blockchain because they think it's not truly decentralized and it's not as much pushing the envelope. But I actually started investing in enterprise software in 99 and I stayed away from the consumer internet back then. And a lot of my companies survived the whole bubble bursting because they were finding actual use cases. Again, not the sexiest uses of the technology, but it's supply chain management, logistics, being able to track packages in a more efficient way online and um, in more real time than the old database is allowed. So I guess that also shows my gray hair. <laughs>
1: None is evident for those listening. <laughs>
0: I have a good uh, colorist. <laughs> <laughs> I think as much as the consumer applications and the things 20 years out captures our imaginations, a lot of what can be proven out in the shorter term is going to be by enterprises that have the capital, the people, the resources to be able to weather downturns, and actually measure return on investment of the new technology. And so that's why I'm not anti-enterprise blockchain. I think it's going to be an important piece of the puzzle.
1: I was talking to an entrepreneur, a very successful entrepreneur in the space, whose revenue going from 8 or 9 to 20 next year, a thriving company, whose West Coast VCs pulled their support. He had to raise, build a whole new syndicate despite the incredible ramp that you don't usually see in most industries, much less... Crypto at this point. And they explained to him, you know what, this isn't really radical enough. You know, it's not decentralized enough. And he's like, I just thought profitable revenue was a good thing, but I guess the flavor of profitable revenue matters more than I thought. That's um,
0: a, a tale of two coasts.
1: <laughs> perhaps, perhaps. And so this, this entrepreneur is in the capital markets. And I would say the one area that we, primarily my partner, Salil, we've been very active investing in, is is in the kind of market structure around crypto as an asset class. So we've, again, Salil gets all the credit for this, probably made 10 investments in and around that space. Have you done anything in that space? The sort of, you know, exchanges and custody and um, market data, like the thought experiment of it, if people are going to be investing in crypto, like they invest in equities and fixed income, what are we going to need?
0: Absolutely. As I said before, I believe in tokenization. I believe that crypto assets are around to stay. And if you believe that, then you also believe there's a lot of infrastructure that needs to be built out that doesn't exist right now. So custody of crypto assets, how do you keep these secure? How do you value them? And how do you trade them right. across borders in different regulatory environments? All of that needs to be figured out. Crypto assets is, is one piece, crypto asset infrastructure is one piece, enterprise blockchain use cases, which really have nothing. To do with crypto assets right now, eventually they may converge or there may be some overlap. But right now enterprises don't want to have anything to do with cryptocurrency. Um, And so that's another area. And then emerging market, new business models. Uh, So outside of the U.S. in the developing world, what are some of these micro-insurance products that will be possible through decentralized data? What are new ways of uh, machine learning uh, when you have access to anonymized or partly anonymized data sets. And so that's a lot of what I'm thinking about for the future. But I believe tokenization will be here to
1: stay. Yeah, we've certainly seen incredible entrepreneurs attracted to it, you know, and that's usually a, a great tell for all investors. It has a massive democratization effect, both globally and then within society, any given society.
0: Well, Matt, I could sit here and talk to you forever. It's, it's a luxury that we don't usually have. But thanks so much for the conversation and your insights. I, I certainly learned a lot.
1: I learned a ton. Thank you so much. And I'll see you soon.
2: For conversations you can't ignore, come back every Monday and Thursday for new episodes. Subscribe now and never stop learning.